Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. Have you ever wondered why certain songs get stuck in your head or why certain memories are triggered when listening to music? In this episode, we get into a mind-blowing discussion about everything from earworms to how music can be applied as an Alzheimer's therapy. We're joined by Dr. Kelly Jakubowski, a researcher specializing in music and memory. Kelly is an assistant professor of music psychology at Durham University in the UK. She studied music performance on the violin and music theory for her undergrad at Baldwin Wallace University and later her master's at Ohio State. She then pursued an MSc and PhD in music psychology at Goldsmiths University of London. Kelly, welcome to Beat Seeker. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kelly, in a past episode of Beat Seeker, we interviewed McGill researcher Dr. Robert Zatori, uh, who explained kind of what happens in the brain when we listen to music. And although we touched on earworms with him, one area we didn't go really deep into was music and memory, the focus of your work. So let's start with earworms because it's a fun topic. Uh, And I believe that you got into this area research by studying earworms. So can you explain what is an earworm and why do they happen? Sure. So um, an earworm is an experience that many of us have had um, often quite regularly when a song spontaneously pops into one's mind and repeats, sometimes quite incessantly on a loop. And this repetition, yeah, it can happen a few times or it can happen over the course of minutes or hours or a day if you're unlucky. <laughs> and there's many reasons um, why we can get songs stuck in our head. Um, so the most common reason is, is just that we've heard a song recently and um, perhaps that song is particularly catchy. Um, so uh, we've also looked at, for instance, musical features of what makes a catchy tune. So um, tunes that are a bit more upbeat or tunes that have quite sort of generic melodic um, contours um, tend to more often get stuck in our heads, for instance. Hmm. But there's also some more like abstract reasons why we can get songs in our heads. So even if you haven't heard a song in a long time, it can be triggered by a lot of different types of memory associations. So if I see um, an umbrella, it might make me think of the song by Rihanna called Umbrella. So there's lots of sort of cues in our everyday environment that can actually remind us of, of, of the lyrics of songs or particular artists that, that might bring an earworm to mind as well. Interesting. And just your mention of Umbrella might be earworming our audience with Umbrella after this episode, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Or, you know, we, we were mentioning pre-interview Baby Shark. So rather than hearing the melody, you might be, you know, visiting the aquarium or something and see a baby shark. And then that could kind of trigger that and get it get it kind of running through your brain. Yes, definitely. That's really interesting. So are, are some people more prone to earworms than others? 
Um, yeah, so we found that there are certain um, what we call individual differences, especially people that engage more with music, not only people that are more trained, but people that just, you know, are avid concert goers and so on tend to get more earworms. Um, but there's also some personality traits associated with earworm experiences. So people who are more sort of um, open to experiences, often sort of creative and imaginative imaginative and so on, um, experience more earworms. And that might also be related to sort of music engagement as well. And also people that have um, score more highly in neuroticism, which is this um, tendency to um, sort of uh, maybe sort of obsess over details and so on. They also tend to experience earworms um, more persistently and and have a more sort of negative reaction to them as well. Um, so yeah, there are various um, uh, personal factors that contribute to the experience. That's so, so interesting. And I was looking at, at a list that was claiming to be some of the top earworms of all time. Uh, some of these songs include Queen's We Will Rock You, uh, Pharrell Williams' Happy, Queen, again, We Are the Champions, mm -hmm. The Proclaimers, uh, I'm Going to Be, or people know that 500 miles part, and The Village People's YMCA. So what what makes one, you, you were saying a little bit about maybe the melodic contours or something, but what you know, how would you describe it maybe in layperson's terms as to what makes one song more more earwormy than another and i mean do you do you quantify do you sign are you able to scientifically quantify or measure the strength of an earworm reaction like that's what that these are the properties that make this song more earwormy if that's a word yeah so um we've done a little bit of research on that um initially which it's partially the the melodic feet or the sort of yeah the, the features of the music itself um like i said sort of an upbeat tempo, um, various facets of the melodic contour and so on that, that contribute. Um, but in the study that we did on this, we also looked at sort of non-musical features. So just um, how much the song, um, how how long it was in the charts and how recently it was in the charts and so on. And these these factors play as much of a role, if, if not even more. Um, so it's kind of a combination of, of the sort of musical features and the non-musical features. And I would also mention, actually, there's been some research which highlighted um, some similar songs to what you just mentioned that was on sort of the sing-along ability of songs, which I think um, is quite related actually, um, because if you can sing along to a song, it might actually be more likely to kind of sing, you know, you sing along to it in your mind afterwards as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of YMCA. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of, <laughs> yeah, a lot of songs highlighted in, in that research were these kind of very sort of anthemic songs, songs that have a sort of clear beat that you can kind of really sing along to in a big group. Um, a lot of times using quite um, sort of high male chest voice that kind of incites this sort of tribal nature in us maybe to sort of um, sing along the, the, the sort of evolutionary, you know, if you think about, you know, why music evolved, um, this sort of social bonding aspect is, is really important. Um, yeah, so I think, um, yeah, all of those things might play a role. That's really cool. And I, I mean, you said something there. I, I was going to ask why Queen might be 
uh, on this list twice. And I think maybe I, I've already started to think uh, about what you were just saying about the non-musical factors, the fact that Queen really cuts across generations and those songs have been hits for so long and 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 used in other, you know, they're used in sports venues and all these different places. So everybody kind of knows those, those Queen songs. But do you, I, I was also wondering if, you know, do you think some artists might intentionally try to make songs earwormy or is that, you know, just, is that just being good at writing a catchy melody or a catchy lyric that then ends up turning into earworms? Have you looked into that at all? Yeah, that that's an interesting question. I think a lot of times people are doing this more sort of subconsciously. Um, you know, they, they, they've just listened to a lot of music and they know what, what good music is and what good music isn't. And they've kind of learned it sort of through enculturation in, in musical practices um, more implicitly rather than, you know, trying to come up with the, the, the formula for a hit song. And actually some, um, there's been some scientific research um, uh, that's kind of known as, as, quote unquote, hit song science, um, which has tried to sort of use the melodic features to predict whether a song became a success or not. Mm. And actually, many of those studies have have sort of failed. They, they haven't been able to predict with, with very much success whether something became a hit or not. So yeah, this idea, um, this search for a sort of scientific formula that explains whether something will be a hit has so far not really proved to be very fruitful. Interesting. There's no, there's no hit factory silver bullet there. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, sometimes Kelly, when I'm listening to a specific song, the same memory pops into my head each time, you know, like for example, the place when I first heard that song. And I understand that there's a scientific term to describe this called music evoked autobiographical memories. You know, I don't know if you short form that to memes, but uh, not to be confused with the other meme. Yeah. But uh, can you explain what this phenomena is and, and why it occurs? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we often refer to this as M-E-A-M-S um, uh, memes. So music evoked autobiographical memories. And this is the experience. Yeah. When, when, when you're listening to a piece of music and um, it brings back an autobiographical memory. And, and what I mean by an autobiographical memory is actually um, quite a diverse range of different things. So um, autobiographical memories can be memories of very specific events from our lives, but they can also be memories of more sort of general time periods. So you might have a song that just sort of generally reminds you of your teenage years, for instance. Um, and they can also be, um, there can be sort of facts about your life that sort of come to mind as well, as well as um, sort of more general memories of sort of people or places from your life. Um, like you just mentioned, you know, a, a piece of music might be associated with a particular place that you remember from, from a certain period. And is it the, so is it is it often that the song triggers a memory or the I guess repetition of the memory triggers the song, which is that 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 is being evoked here? Um, yeah, so so generally the way that we study it is is that the song sort of consistently triggers a, a memory. Uh, but yeah, that that's an interesting idea that that a, 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 for instance, a, a place might actually trigger a memory of a, a piece of music as yeah. well. and I'm sure that 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 
can happen. Um, that, that association isn't always necessarily in one way or the other. Uh, we've even actually had some reports of, of people having an earworm, and then that evokes an autobiographical memory. So all these topics are, are linked somehow okay. as well. <laughs> <laughs> and are there certain triggers you know, that, that are more likely to cause this effect? Like what, what, what do you think is the, um, are sort of common reasons why you think this is true for some songs, but not others? Yeah. So, um, we've been looking into the familiarity as a really sort of obvious factor and, and more familiar music is, is, is of course, um, as you might expect, more likely to trigger more autobiographical memories and triggers them faster as well. Um, so um, it's a more sort of direct retrieval process. Um, but there's also other factors related to the music that might sort of shape our, our remembering processes. So for instance, we've been looking at um, how emotional features of the music might shape our remembering. Mm -hmm. So we found that, for instance, um, more sort of energetic pieces of music cue and um, more sort of energetic memories. Um, uh, so if, if you have, you know, a really uh, arousing fast tempo piece of music, it often, you know, cues these memories that are of sort of exciting events or dancing or things like this, which probably is, you know, at least partially related to this sort of coupling between um, sort of uh, context appropriate music, right? So music that is quite emotionally arousing is probably paired with emotionally arousing events in our lives. But an interesting finding actually um, that we had in our, our most recent study was that um, we were comparing music to um, sort of emotionally congruent stimuli. So words and other types of sounds um, that were also sort of equally emotional to the music. So to give an example, like a peaceful piece of music was compared against a, a sound of sort of waves on the beach with crickets at night and so on. Um, and we, we selected lots and lots of, you know, different emotional stimuli. And we found that music overwhelmingly evoked quite positive um, emotional memories, regardless of whether the, the music expressed a, a, a negative connotation. So even if it was like sad or angry music, it, it evoked quite positive memories, whereas the sort of sad or angry words or sounds evoked more negative memories, as you might expect. Um, so I found that quite interesting, this idea that music might actually be a bit unique in comparison to other autobiographical memory cues in its ability to bring back quite positive memories from our lifetimes. Hmm. So I can still be have happy memories while listening to death metal or something like that. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Uh, but, and, and, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, highly emotionally charged and 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 maybe time of arousal, uh, we, we tend to be extremely nostalgic about the music that we listened to when we were young, when we were, you know, youths, teenagers, kind of that, that sort of pu puberty time. And every generation thinks that their music is better than whatever the kids are listening to these days. And I, I mean, I know I feel that way. Uh, why do you think this is the case? Is there some reason why we think music from the past is better? Is, has it got something to do with the memories or nostalgic associations that we have from that specific time in our lives? Yeah, sure. So um, we've done a bit of research in this area, looking at what's known as the um, reminiscence bump. 
And um, I'll just explain that. So that's actually um, a general psychological concept that's not specific to music, which is the idea that um, when you ask people to recall autobiographical memories from their lives, they disproportionately recall memories from when they were sort of teenagers and early adults, um, somewhere between the ages of sort of 10 to 30. And we found, and, and other researchers have also found, uh, a sort of musical reminiscence bump as well. So people tend to recall more um, music-evoked autobiographical memories from that time period, um, that reminiscence bump time period, but they also, um, music that was released during that time period triggers more memories for them as well. Um, and we found specifically, um, so the musical reminiscence bump, it's actually a little bit sort of earlier than the sort of general psychological reminiscence bump peaking around age sort of um, 14 or so. So really in these sort of teenage years, um, we think. And and yeah, this, this is probably related to a variety of factors. So um, people generally tend to listen to more music during that lifetime period, but also the events that they experience during that life, that lifetime period are really sort of crucial in identity formation and so on. And so these kind of become linked to that music from that period. Um, and so that can make us particularly nostalgic, I think, about music from that particular time period. Mm. And there's a, you know, there's a common trope, which is that your musical tastes get formed, you know, by a certain age and then kind of get set. Um, do you think that's a related factor in all this? Yeah, so um, there, there's, there has been some research suggesting that that sort of musical taste formation has a similar sort of bump and similar sort of time period to this um, uh this autobiographical memory reminiscence bump. Um, although I think, you know, the sort of um, taste formation um, research is the, the, the findings are a little bit more mixed in terms of that, you know, you, not all people sort of form their tastes and, and, and then never listen to any new music again. And I think, you know, this is also related to personal personality factors. Um, like I mentioned before, this sort of um, openness to experience that some people score quite highly on this trait that makes them more open to sort of investigating new music styles and so on, um, even maybe as they get older. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there, there, there certainly will be some links in, in terms of taste formation. Yes. So, you know, ear, earworms are a kind of an amusing novelty, but I understand there's actually pretty serious applications of, of this research into potential therapeutic applications like Alzheimer's treatment, dementia, even PTSD. Can, can you explain, you know, what are some of the promising applications of music and, and memory research as it applies to health? Sure. So I think... Um... Probably um, some of the most research that's been done in terms of music and memory has been with people with Alzheimer's disease, for instance. And there's been quite a range of research done in that area. So, for instance, if we think about music and autobiographical memory, there's been some studies suggesting that these um, memes, music-evoked autobiographical memories, are relatively preserved, at least in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, um, in comparison to other autobiographical memories, such as those evoked by photo, um, photographs of famous events. Um, that was a study by Amy Baird and colleagues that was particularly interesting. And there's been some other research on, on sort of early Alzheimer's as well, suggesting that 
um, music can evoke um, quite positive and self-defining memories and so on. I would say one limitation of, of this area is that um, not a lot of the autobiographical memory research has been done in the sort of later stages of Alzheimer's disease. So I think there's still some, some things to find out there. But um, I would say that, you know, mu music therapists who work with people with Alzheimer's, they really do use music across the whole sort of spectrum of the disease. And they do find it useful in various other aspects. So um, even if people aren't sort of able to sort of explicitly um, recognize the melody um, at, at, in the later stages, it often can still sort of boost their mood, or they can draw another sort of remaining sort of cognitive functions that, um, because music is, is it's quite a sort of diverse thing that you can, you know, um, it can boost your mood, but also it inspires motor responses. So even if people have sort of impaired cognitive functions, they might be able to sort of drum along with the music and, and that kind of creates a sort of joint attention between the, um, the patient and the therapist, for instance, that can um, promote this sort of. And is, it, um, and is the idea that this could, this could help to, uh, I guess, slow down memory loss or bring back some memory loss or more? Is it just that it makes the patient feel a little bit better? Uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a bit of both. So I, I, I think that there's still a lot of research to be done to, to really see if music could actually reverse or, uh, or sort of slow down memory loss. I, I think that that's still quite an open question. And I, I don't think there's a lot of convincing evidence yet around that idea, um, except for maybe the sort of one thing that's been shown to be preserved quite long is, is that if people have some sort of procedural memory for music. So for instance, if they can play the piano, often they can keep playing familiar songs on the piano quite long into the disease, um, mm. which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, in, in terms of sort of more general effects, um, yeah, we do see, you know, these sort of boosts in mood and mood and sort of um, symptom management that, you know, music can decrease anxiety and depression and so on. Um, uh, but, but whether it can actually, you know, really, I, I think reversing memory loss might be a bit, a, a bit of a strong. A stretch, um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, okay, Kelly, this is the time in the show that we like to ask our guests for a music recommendation. What are you into lately? <laughs> well, um, as I uh, mentioned to, to both of you earlier before we started this show, so I, I, um, I've just become a, a mother in the past year. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so as such, I, I have to say that I haven't been investigating a lot of sort of my own new music Been really busy with, with that aspect. Um, so I've just been investigating sort of what a young child will listen to. Um, and I have to say that um, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised by um, going back to some music from my childhood. So for instance, we've been listening to a bit of Rafi. Do you know Rafi? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> which, um, you know, I, I think that's a really excellent, um, it, it, it's not grading on parents. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's actually, you know, pretty good quality music and he's a decent songwriter, um, but also, you know, really positive messages. Um, so I would say for parents, you know, um, even though that's, you know, that's really old music now, it, it, it's still a, a favorite with children. And yeah, and, and surprisingly, you know, she actually really responds really well to 
the Beach Boys and the Beatles and ABBA. She loves to dance to ABBA. So, you know, all these classic hits, um, you know, you can bring them back out for the kids and, and they okay. still enjoy it. Are you, are you creating a, a log book and sort of monitoring her reactions to different uh, <laughs> music, music stimulus? Not really. Though I should say, um, so this is um, another thing that came up in our reminiscence bump research, which was originally found by Carol Crumhansler and colleagues, this um, cascading reminiscence bump idea that people have a reminiscence bump, not only for music from their child or their teenage years, but also from their parents' teenage years. Um, so whatever their parents uh, really sort of, whatever shape their parents' preferences also tends to shape the children's preferences as well. So you can impact your children is the message. <laughs> and I wonder though, if some, some go in the opposite direction, right? The one of the bell against their parents and their parents' music, and then they probably come back to it later in life. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think eventually they do come back to it though. That's the thing. Yeah. Uh, that's going to have me listening to uh, a lot of opera and classical uh, later in life. Cause that's what, what was playing in my house. I just, I just had, a, I just had a meme as you said that, and I'm driving with my, we're teenagers with uh, one of my best friends and his dad had this old truck and I think it had an eight track and he only had one eight track, which was Rod Stewart. And he put that Rod Stewart in every time we got in. We're like, no, not again. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so uh, finally, Kelly, if listeners would like to follow you or your work online, where should they go? Um, so I have uh, a Twitter account, which is KJ underscore Jakubowski. And um, <laughs> if you can spell that. <laughs> and um, my website is um, musicscience.net. Great. We'll put links to those in the show notes as well. So listeners can find them there. And uh, Kelly, thanks so much for being with us today. That was a really, really interesting conversation. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, nice to chat. Thanks, Kelly. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm. And if you want to be part of the show, check out our Patreon link. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Tim Ratledge is our editor. Thanks for tuning in and keep seeking.